Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings Lead Sovereign Analyst for China. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Mervyn Tang. Mervyn is based in Hong Kong as Fitch's global head of ESG research and someone who I now regularly turn to for sustainability-related questions, particularly as these issues become increasingly pertinent for global fixed income investors. I got to know Mervyn years ago during his time in the Asia-Pacific Sovereigns team. After some years working on ESG issues outside of Fitch, he returned in 2019 as one of the firm's first hires in the Sustainable Finance Group and has been instrumental in rolling out Fitch's ESG relevance scores, which now cover over 11,000 issuers, transactions, and programs across virtually all rating groups. Thanks, Andrew. Really glad to be here. To kick off, I was hoping you could give us a brief overview of Fitch's general approach to ESG. What are ESG relevance scores, and what do they seek to capture? That's a good place to start because it can be a bit confusing when we talk to investors. Um, Fitch, when we think about ESG, uh, doesn't assess kind of good or bad ESG performance. So it's not some moral judgment on how environmentally sustainable uh, a company is. What we look at is how ESG issues affect credit ratings. So is there some financial transmission channel which leads to a potential impact on the finances of a company? So if there is tighter carbon regulations, a high carbon company could face additional costs. Or if um, banks and asset managers start pulling away financing from entities of higher carbon, they could face financing pressures. So that's what we look at as opposed to kind of some judgment on how good a company is. Okay. Since ESG is such a broad topic, today I was hoping we might focus on just the environmental component. In general, what types of environmental issues tend to be the most credit relevant in Fitch's assessment of ESG scores globally and, and why? And I guess a follow-up question to that is whether it differs by product group or, or by region. It does, uh, both product group and region. So I mentioned regulation as one thing. And so there's different paces of regulation. So if we look at APAC, regulation in on carbon is just not as tight. And so when we look at the relevant scores, you don't see so much of a material impact, even though it's a relevant risk. Whereas if you look at Europe, there are more examples of um, utilities in particular having been impacted by the emission trading scheme. So I think one example is the EU ETS is trading at, uh, the carbon allowances are trading at 60, USD a ton, whereas in China, the kind of expected prices and also in the regional pilot schemes are more at the 11 to $14 a ton. Now, if we're thinking about outside of regulation, there's kind of different environmental risks that comes from uh, kind of different sectors. So natural resources have issues with, say, uh, the potential for oil spills or tailing dam incidents, which leads to either fines or uh, disruptions when it comes to uh, their operations. Uh, you also have, say, physical environmental risks, uh, which particularly relevant to, say, sectors like insurance, uh, where there is um, the potential for natural disasters to cause either damage or disrupt uh, economic operations. Well, thanks for that uh, primer on how we see environmental issues affecting ratings. I guess let's maybe pivot directly on China now. In late 2020, President Xi Jinping made a major announcement in his address to the UN General Assembly that China would aim to achieve peak carbon emissions by the year 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. Does a major policy announcement like this have any implications for how we assess ESG relevance scores in China? 
what type of sectors might stand to benefit from this policy pronouncement, and I guess maybe which are most at risk. I'd also be keen to understand how firm and country-level emissions data are typically estimated. Is there an internationally agreed-upon reporting framework? Are data generally comparable across countries? Yep. So quite a lot in that question. Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll start with the first side. So um, do su does such a major policy announcement have an implication from a credit or ESG relevance score perspective? It, absolutely, it can do. But I think one thing with ESG relevance scores is we're thinking about the impact on credit ratings. And so there are different um, rating forecast horizons when it comes to cre different credit rating criteria. So for a corporate uh, it would be typically, say, three to five years when uh, when we're thinking about our forecast horizon. In that sense, because the pledges are for, um, I think, 2030 and 2060, the actual transition can be quite slow. And so when we're thinking about the implications of such a policy announcement, the devil's in the detail. So how fast will renewables ramp up? How fast would decarbonization happen in terms of the kind of removal of coal from the energy mix? And so I think there's a lot of considerations to be had with the overall policy direction, which China and actually many other economies which have made similar pledges will take. Now, which sectors mo might stand to benefit, which are most at risk? Again, this is kind of um, quite complicated in the sense that I think in terms of most at risk, typically um, when it comes to emission trading system, uh, people focus on the power generation sector just because that's where kind of the uh, emissions is greatest and there's kind of most uh, room to actually abate emissions. When we looked at what happened in Europe, I think there actually needs to be kind of some other considerations to think about here because if you have higher carbon costs, it doesn't necessarily automatically impact the credit. Because if you're in an oligopoly type structure, you could pass on those higher carbon costs to your consumers. And so I think there's, all, there's thinking about what that cost implication for carbon means and how much, and also just the overall st business structure and industry structure that it might impact. And so yeah, there's, there's kind of a huge amount to think about when we think about ESG relevance scores and what these policy pledges mean. Yeah, and, and I guess you rightly point out that I mean, 2060 is quite a long ways from now, um, and rating horizons, they don't go out that far. And so I think if you're thinking about this in a, a normal rating horizon, it's, it's probably well beyond that. It is. I think one of the things, though, is these pledges will require some near-term policies to be made. And so it's about how abrupt these policies will tighten. So it could be the case where it becomes quite clear, let's say in a, in a, in a few years' time, that these pledges aren't going to be made without a rapid tightening of policy. And the more abrupt the policy is, the more potential there mm. is credit impact. What about some of the, the data-related issues um, about uh, how we capture this and whether it's comparable uh, across countries? Yeah, so it's it starts off simple, but then gets progressively more complicated as these things do. So uh, when it comes to carbon data, so um, there is uh, the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which is a partnership between um, the World Resources Institute and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development that got uh, set up years ago, which kind of lays out the best practices for carbon accounting. So uh, I think when I say carbon, it's worth mentioning that we're talking about greenhouse gases in general. So um, the key difference is something like methane is 
is 25 times as potent as carbon when it comes to global warming impact. Something like nitrous oxide is 300 times as uh, potent. And so that's why we think about things in terms of carbon dioxide equivalents. And so uh, it, it's quite important because something like methane is much more important to consider when it comes to, say, the extraction of natural gas and potential methane leakage, whereas nitrous oxide is a bigger part of agriculture production. So there's a lot of things that need to be kind of calculated and thought about kind of even just from that component. And so another thing that the um, greenhouse gas protocols kind of split separates is scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, which you might have heard the term. And so scope one is the most direct emissions. So if I am a construction company and I own a truck that's burning fuel, that's a direct emission from my business and it's a scope one. Or if I'm a steel manufacturer and I'm uh, using fuel for blast furnace, that's scope one. Then there is um, electricity that I use because the electricity I use, I don't directly have emissions from that, but I'm indirectly having emissions, especially if that electricity comes from coal or oil. And so in that context, what we have is with scope two, it's, um, it's a calculation of the indirect emissions from electricity used by my company or country. Then you get to scope three, which becomes much, much harder to calculate. And that is your supply chain emissions. So there's both downstream and upstream. So upstream would be if I am a real estate company and I'm or a construction company, I also need to account for my raw materials carbon emissions. So if I'm using cement, that cement would have emissions itself in its life cycle process. And then on downstream, if I'm, let's say, an automobile manufacturer and I sell a car, I will also uh, need to consider the emissions from the usage of that car. And so once you look at this whole um, kind of uh, spectrum of emissions, it's quite a lot. Yeah, and it strikes me that there could also be some double counting issues that you might need to uh, think about as well. Yes, and that gets even more complicated for countries, because when we're thinking about countries, then there is both production and consumption emissions. So if we're thinking about, let's say, an Australia, where you have a huge amount of natural resources or like an exports of, say, coal, I am actually uh, producing a huge amount of emissions, but actually I'm not consuming that much for my own activities. Whereas if I'm a major energy importer from a consumption perspective, having a lot higher carbon emissions. So you can calculate these numbers in a lot of ways, but to turn it into a policy relevant metric or even an analytically relevant metric, you need to think about what these numbers actually mean. Okay. So the answer is it's it's quite complicated. Oh, and increasingly so. <laughs> so I guess now that we have a, a general understanding of what China is hoping to achieve, uh, I think it would be helpful if you might help us better understand where the starting point is. As a sovereign analyst, I'm still struck by how reliant China's economy continues to be on investment, which I think is a major outlier uh, compared with other peers around the world at about 40% of GDP. I suspect this type of growth model is very carbon intensive. Uh, so what is the current state of affairs in China? What parts of the economy do carbon emissions generally originate? And I guess more broadly, what kind of changes need to happen over the coming years or decades for these targets to be achievable? Yeah, there is. When it comes to China, and I think actually a lot of APAC countries in general, 
compared to the rest of the world, the economies are more fossil fuel intensive. So we take something like China, we're talking kind of two thirds of electricity generation coming from thermal power. This is not saying that in China, there's been a huge amount of investment in hydro, wind and solar in recent years, but that's just a huge amount of energy needs from such a rapidly growing economy. We've also seen fossil fuel generation ramp up. And so to actually get to net zero, you will need a, a substantial acceleration in the pace of renewable investment, as well as a significant decarbonization of existing energy sources. So decommissioning coal plants, for example. And so that, that in whole process will require a substantial amount of investment. And I think that's electricity generation alone. You mentioned, so, so elect, that will be power sector. There's also other sectors to consider. So China is a big industrial economy. And so things like steel, cement, uh, aluminium, all require a huge amount of energy. And so they are burning uh, often fossil fuels to be able to create those uh, industrial commodities. Similarly, when we're talking about, uh, say, the transport sector and the building sector, uh, transport, and it's particularly in a world where we're still using a huge amount of internal combustion engines, uh, oil is a big source of energy consumption. And then in real estate, it's uh, one of the kind of biggest source of electricity usage in terms of both electricity usage, as well as kind of uh, heating and cooling when it comes to energy sources. So all those sectors have room to decarbonize. And there are government policies coming through, particularly in the 14th five-year plan, which are targeting and kind of thinking about how these industry structures could shift uh, to get to that low carbon economy. I guess maybe picking one particular sector uh, that's particularly newsworthy, China has become a major market for electric vehicles and now looks to be toe-to-toe with the European Union, uh, with the U.S. trailing quite far behind based on the latest data I saw. So this seems to be a major focus area for China, with the government putting in place quite ambitious targets, such as requiring that 20% of all new passenger car car sales in 2025 be new energy vehicles. Uh, In your mind, how important are EVs to China's overall emissions reduction strategy? I would say very important, but it's also uh, contingent on how well China decarbonization to electricity and its grid in the first place. So uh, like I mentioned, kind of one of the big sources of energy consumption in any economy is uh, vehicles and the oil that is used to fuel those vehicles operations. Now, you could have a complete switch to electric vehicles, and that could lower carbon to some extent, but there's kind of a few other considerations to be had because if that electricity is mainly generated by thermal coal, your net emission reduction is probably not very much, if at all. And then there's also kind of life cycle considerations. So uh, when it comes to, say, the construction of an electric vehicle, the decommissioning of a battery, which is the most expensive part of an electric vehicle, and the construction of it, all those things will have emissions as well. And so when you calculate the lifetime emissions in the current situation where the fossil fuels is an important part of electricity generation in China, then it's not automatic that EVs are lower carbon. But to get to a world where we are net zero carbon emissions, we need both electric vehicles as well as a low carbon uh, electric grid to get to that net zero stage. I seem to recall there are also some broader ESG issues with many of the metals used in the production of electric vehicle batteries. What are these concerns Uh, in your mind? Do they offset some of the potential benefits of electric vehicles from an emissions reduction perspective? 
Yes. So I think in terms of electric vehicles, we're, we're talking about a world which I think that's part of the strategy for many different economies. And so to ramp up electric vehicles to that extent, there's going to be a huge demand for battery metals. So uh, lithium, cobalt, nickel. And so if we think about where some of these uh, metals are mined, there are issues that have kind of come up. So with cobalt, uh, much of uh, cobalt is uh, mined in uh, the Congo and Zambia, where there has been accusations of child labor being involved. And so we have seen, let's say, companies like Tesla actually try and commit to cobalt-free batteries because of concerns around these social issues. Lithium, uh, let's say Chile is actually one of the major lithium producers when it comes to miners, I think like around 20% of lithium. We have seen mining in Chile cause a significant amount of water stress. So we've seen water rationing policies uh, in Chile. Um, the industrial usage and mining usage of water is leading to a rationing for households. And so that's pressuring the rest of the economy. And so if we imagine a world where demands for these battery metals increases substantially, these problems are going to probably be exacerbated. And then how you deal with that is, uh, is going to be complicated. I think the second part is, I think, because these are relatively rare metals, the price of these metals are going to ramp up if there is a huge increase in demand. And that's going to push up the cost of electric vehicles overall. And that's going to challenge adoption. Okay, so I guess there's a couple takeaways from my side. The first is that there are potentially indirect environmental or direct environmental concerns involved with some of the components in electric vehicles. And then the second point which you made is that essentially, if your power sector is still essentially powered by fossil fuels, electrification of vehicles alone is not going to help you achieve your broader emission reduction targets. What about China's national emission trading scheme? which I understand was launched earlier this year. What kind of impact do you think that might have on emissions, maybe over both the short and medium term? And maybe for the benefit of our audience, you know, how does China's scheme compare with others currently in place elsewhere in the world? I think the launch of the National Emission Trading Scheme is, is a huge logistical undertaking. And so the, the ability to uh, calculate and verify emissions across different entities, uh, the ability to create a trading and auctioning and other mechanisms, it takes a huge amount of effort to create this sort of system. And so I think the creation of this in China does allow a policy lever for decarbonization in the future. That said, if we look at where the emission trading scheme is now, it's very much at the testing phase because if we look at the penalties and the kind of uh, where carbon prices have been trading, it's relatively low. So take an example. So China's had regional pilots for emission trading schemes for quite a while. If we look at Beijing, where there's the highest carbon prices, we're, we're talking around 11 to 14 US dollars uh, per tonne. And I think when we look at carbon pricing surveys in China, uh, the expectations for 2025 and 2030 uh, 2030 is around that range. That compares to where Europe is for carbon prices at the moment, which is 60 USD a tonne. So there is a quite a difference in terms of carbon pricing now. And when we look at, say, the sectors, so the EU uh, uh, ETS has been around for quite a while. So it started with the power sector, but has kind of slowly expanded to industrials and other sectors. In China, it's starting off with the power sector, but eventually we'll get to kind of seven other sectors. And so kind of what we expect with China ETS 
ATS, it's that it will be ramped up over time and the speed it will ramp up will probably uh, involve balancing uh, social and uh, economic growth considerations. So if technology for decarbonization becomes much cheaper, let's say renewables and batteries technology uh, becomes much more cost efficient, it's much easier to tighten the uh, China ETS policies very quickly. Whereas if there is a, a sudden growth shock that require, it means that a um, tighter carbon prices would have more of a macro impact, we expect then the policies would be slower. If I try to contextualize some of your points in a way that might help us link this to uh, longer-term growth dynamics in China, you've you know, very clearly articulated that the power sector is the largest source of emissions. So maybe let's just focus there. Transition costs aside, if I imagine two identical economies, uh, one is entirely powered by fossil fuels and the other entirely powered by renewables, I wouldn't necessarily conclude that one economy should grow more quickly or more slowly than the other one. I guess in practice, probably not that simple. So in your mind, what are the key constraints or considerations uh, for China in executing such a transition? I think this is a really good question because I think sometimes this is contextualized at a, say, single entity level as opposed to an econ economy level. Because I think the concerns that people have is, if you decarbonize and you start, say, ending decommissioning coal plants quicker, the, those involved in the coal sector are going to lose their jobs. And so you have a job impact in fossil fuel sectors. Then there's also the potential for high energy costs because uh, there's the reason why you're using fossil fuels is because energy, as part of the overall energy mix, it could lead to lower costs. And so there's potential for higher energy costs. And then in a world where only those things are a factor, yes, of course, that could have a negative economic impact. But the world doesn't kind of work in isolation, particularly in economies. So with um, the decarbonization of coal and fossil fuels, there's also a surge in investment in renewables. So a huge amount going into wind, into solar, the development of energy, uh, renewable energy infrastructure, which creates a whole set of jobs. Now, of course, as kind of we've seen like a lot of different economic transitions, the jobs impact will depend on how quickly labor is able to be shifted from one sector to another. And that depends on labor market frictions, all sort of things that have to be considered. On the energy cost side, I think there is the potential for high energy costs. I think the energy economics is actually quite complicated because if we look at renewables, the marginal cost of generation is actually already lower than fossil fuels. The problem is renewables can't be easily used as a baseload fuel, so a fuel for um, any time and any period because it's uh, the generation will be dependent on wind conditions and whether the sun is out or not. And so you need batteries ultimately to be able to use renewables as a load. And so at the moment, the cost competitiveness with fossil fuels is mixed. So you need kind of both in the energy mix at this point. Uh, but we could see in the world suddenly technology improves on battery costs, uh, and then suddenly renewables become a much cheaper substitute as a baseload. And so I think with all this, I think there's also the investment side of things where there's going to be a huge amount of public investment required and private investment uh, on renewables. Then the question is, okay, will that crowd out investment on other things uh, or will there be a multiplier effect? Again, kind of one of those big economic questions that are not simple to answer. Yeah. So it's it's pretty inconclusive. But I think what you're saying here about this baseload capacity is that if renewables, they cannot currently step in solely to be the baseload capacity for an economy and technology and innovation is going to be key to solving that technological hurdle. Yeah, I think renewables is 
part of the energy mix because of the lower marginal costs. But I think in design of the kind of uh, energy infrastructure at the moment, fossil fuels is part of it. But I think as technology changes, I think the role fossil fuels have to play becomes less and less. While we're on this topic of growth, you know, China's economy is clearly much, much less dependent on exports than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, at the same time, it's still clearly important for growth and employment. I think the pandemic is an excellent example of this, uh, with Chinese exports having really outperformed over the past year as a result of a surge in global demand for medical supplies, electronics, and other consumer goods. The EU, uh, which is a global leader in environmental practices and one of China's major trading partners, is now considering a carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, which could end up raising the cost of imports for uh, from carbon-intensive industries, products, or even entire countries. In your mind, is this likely to materialize? Uh, and if so, uh, you know, what might be the impact to China, either as a whole or in selected industries? Yes. So I think in the EU, um, when the emission trading systems was launched, I think uh, there was a lot of pushback from uh, Export intensive or uh, uh, export industries like steel, aluminium, uh, fertilizers, chemicals, because of the potential global competitiveness impact uh, on uh, domestic EU producers. So the fact that these producers have to pay a higher carbon tax than producers in the rest of the world puts them at a disadvantage. Now the EU's kind of uh, discussed solution for this is this carbon border adjustment mechanism where they try to equalize the kind of impact in some way uh, by taxing uh, imports from other countries. The carbon border adjustment, so we, we haven't seen much details yet. So there's meant to be more details to be published in June this year. Uh, there was a consultation paper on this where a few options was discussed. So potentially, say, a tariff uh, or a consumption tax for some of these Europe imported goods uh, or a extension of the emission trading system. So either uh, making these uh, foreign producers buy allowances or make them buy a type of permit which is linked to the allowances. So the EU conversation so far suggests that it seem it will be a carbon price paid for by importers that are linked to the EU ETS carbon price in some way. Mm. Now, already we have seen pushback from not just China, actually, uh, the US and different economies across the world, because they see this as trade policy and leading to potential for responses when it comes to uh, counter tariffs or uh, counter taxes. And so there is this kind of conversation where it's like, OK, um, there is going to be a very substantial political hurdle to the implementation of this EU carbon border adjustment mechanism. And so for me, I think there's kind of a, a, a lot of directions this could go. You could have a carbon border adjustment mechanism where it's going to lead to counter trade tariffs and other a more complex uh, geopolitical and geo trading uh, economic picture. Or you could have a situation where there's kind of agreement between economies that if the EU doesn't uh, implement this mechanism, there will be actions and policy actions in place in uh, the, some of these other economies. So maybe China tightens so that the carbon prices in China is more uh, comparable to the EU level. So I think there's a lot of different ways this can play out, but I think it's very unclear at this point, given 
the political hurdles. Well, it sounds like trade policy is going to continue to be a hot topic and it's going to weave in with environmental policies in the, in the coming years. So watch this space, I suppose. Absolutely. I guess if we step back a bit from the EU, another big picture global question relates to China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, where China is playing a major role in financing and building out infrastructure across the developing world. Many of these projects are reported to be coal and fossil fuel power generation. This effectively constitutes an indirect export of carbon emissions, though perhaps it's not entirely unlike the impact of developed countries outsourcing manufacturing activities to the developing world in the last several decades. I mean, do you view this as a strike against China's green credentials? And, and if so, is there any evidence that the government is taking steps to further align its environmental objectives uh, at home and abroad? So, like kind of we already talked about all the actions at home. Uh, there has definitely been a lot of statements on uh, abroad. So uh, if we look at, say, um, what China has been doing, there's been a Green Belt and Road Initiative that was formed with some of the kind of key China government uh, ministries, as well as um, uh, international multilateral bodies and uh, other governments and think tanks, which are trying to uh, build out a framework on how to have a Green Belt and Road Initiative. And we're kind of already seeing kind of uh, conversations in, uh, taking place. So take Bangladesh uh, for an example, when some of the Belt and Road conversations are being had uh, at the government level, there has been a push to start actually avoid funding coal power plants that have, are not, not already under construction. And if actually if we look at the Belt and Road overall, I think in 2020, it was the first time that more than 50% of investment in Belt and Road and in terms of power investment was renewables. So renewables is a big part of the Belt and Road initiative already. I think where you see kind of NGOs and kind of others uh, talk about negatives of the Belt and Road is that there is still investment in fossil fuels in certain areas. I think this becomes kind of a bit more complicated because when we're talking about where some of these Belt and Road investments are, it's in places which do not have energy security. And so the question is, how feasible is investment purely in renewables in the energy mixes of some of these economies when there's also a goal for energy security? And so putting this all together, the Belt and Road Initiative is one of the key financing source for a lot of emerging economies and developing economies to build out their energy infrastructure. And so what China does and what how China chooses to allocate capital has a huge impact on the energy transition for many of these EM economies. And we are seeing kind of this initial steps for green, but I think that kind of, again, the detail is going to be important in the next five, 10 years. Okay, Mervin. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I have to admit that preparing for this conversation really took me out of my comfort zone, uh, but I've taken away a lot of new insights and very much hope our listeners agree. Thank you, Andrew. We really covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, please visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.